this morning our series on worship. Do I get a yay or do I get an aww? aww? Yeah, that's about what I expected. Well, we're going to be wrapping up our, our series about worship. We've talked about some of the ways that we're supposed to worship God. We've talked about sacrifice, giving um, to God, including the offering. We've talked about prayer and singing. Um, even last week, we talked about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, letting other people sort of have things that are good for them. And today we're going to talk about living a life that honors God and how that's worship. We're going to be talking about personal holiness. But before we do that, worship's a big issue, right? It's a big topic. It covers a lot of different things. And uh, there's something I want to mention about worship that didn't really fit into any of the sermons so far. So I'm just going to give it to you. It's free, okay? You like free things? This is just free. It's just for you. But I want to talk about using physical actions or postures in worship and where that comes from in the Bible. Because when I was a teenager, I probably was like 12 or 13, um, I had started to notice that people in church, when they're singing, would lift their hands. And so I asked somebody... One of, our, one of the um, volunteers in our youth ministry, I asked her, why are people doing that? And she said, they're trying to touch Jesus on the cross. And I, and I went, oh, that's cr- super creepy. I'm never going to do that. So I sort of put it in my mind, I'm never going to raise my hands because that's something that weird people do. They raise their hands, they're trying to touch Jesus. Ugh. Why would you want to do that? Um, but then one day we were singing in youth group, and I just felt like I should. Do you know what I'm talking about? I just felt like my body wants to, like I'm singing this song, and I'm really wrapped up in the worship, and my body wants to do something too. And I just thought, I want to raise my hands. And, but I'm standing with all of my you know, 13-year-old friends, and we're all you know, there, and I just, so I started to put my hands up like this really slowly, and then my friend next to me went whack and whacked me on the arm, and he was like, "Cut it out!" And I went. I don't know if he was if he thought I was making fun of people that were doing that or or what, but I just and that sort of stifled it for for a few more years. And then later on in my life, someone explained to me that people, most people, <laughs> I think, are not trying to touch Jesus on the cross that when we lift our hands, we're actually doing something that the Bible says, that we're actually, that that's good and biblical, and that when we just, we are essentially pointing our praise up to the Lord, it's also the universal sign of surrender, which is a, a nice thing to be doing while we, while we worship God. And so um, once I understood that, I felt free to raise my hands when, 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 when I sing. Here's what the Bible in particular says about it. And again, this is free. None of this is in your, in your outline. But Psalm 63, verse 4 says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift my hands. And this comes up several times, but here's another one. Psalm 143, verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. There is a place in our worship for physical actions like clapping and lifting hands, kneeling, 
um, falling prostrate before God, I mean, all the way on your face. These are, these are physical things that are, are biblically wrapped into how we worship, and they're appropriate, and they're good. What's not good is to go crazy, right? So you don't want to go wild. So if we start singing a song and you really feel like spinning around or something in the church, save it for when you're at home, right? Um, we need to be able to worship God with our hands and with our bodies because that's good and it's biblical. There's a there are a lot of a lot of reasons for this. One of the key ones when I think about worshiping God, not only with our voices but with our bodies, is is the the declaration in the Old Testament as well as what Jesus said that we're supposed to worship God. We're supposed to love Him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And there's a there's a physical part of that that you're supposed to love God with 360 degrees of you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Every part of you. And so if you can worship God with your hands, if he's leading you to do that, that's okay. That's okay. Um, I want to point out that in Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord said, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. And so I'm trying to encourage you because maybe at some point someone told you that it's not okay to like clap in church. Or someone told you, like, I, like, like my friend hitting me on the arm, that it's not okay to lift your hands. Maybe someone at some point told you that something's not okay. My question for you is, is that coming from the Bible or is that a rule that was made up by people? So that's my encouragement to you, because there is freedom in Christ for us to worship him uh, with our bodies, with how we act, with how we move. So that's, that's biblical and it's appropriate. Chaos is not welcome, but it's okay to lift your hands. It's okay to kneel. If we're singing a song and you want to sit down, sit down. If, you wanna, if we're singing a song and everyone's sitting down and you want to stand up, stand up. If you need to kneel, go ahead and kneel. There are things that are good and are appropriate, and I just want you to know that you've got freedom there to do that. Amen? Amen. Amen. That was free. You can tip me later. Okay. We know God wants more than our words. Amen? More than our words. He doesn't want just lip service. He wants our hearts, and he wants the rest of us too. So like I said, this morning we're going to talk about living a life that is pleasing to God. Because when we get right down to it, what does your worship mean if you walk out those doors and you aren't living a life that's an expression of the redemption that Jesus has given you? Now, on the front end, let me be clear about one thing. None of us are righteous. We've all sinned, but we are declared righteous by Jesus when we, by faith, give our lives to him. And this new life, in this new life, let me, the crystal clear mandate from God to his people is that we be holy. A couple of verses, these are in your bulletin. Leviticus 11:44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. 
And then in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is very high, amen? The standard is very high. We fall short of the standard, but the, the biblical push is for us to be holy, because God is holy. And if we've given your lives to Jesus, it's upon us now to live a holy life. How we live or what's sometimes called piety, personal piety, sometimes called sanctification, uh, but we're going to call it personal holiness, is a key way that we're supposed to worship God because God's presence, his redeeming presence, changes us from the inside out. He doesn't just want your words. God wants to be worshipped by your whole life. By your whole life. Because we can get in here and we can stand together and that's the first blank your whole life we can worship god by we can sing and we can pray and we can do those things but like i said if we walk out the door and we go and and you know cut someone off on the road and you know we're just horrible people i got cut off the other day by some of the big fish on the back of their car and i was like i hope you bought that used The problem is when we there's a there's a song that I used to listen to when I was I was younger and in the middle of the song there, there's like a, a an audio, a clip from someone preaching and he said that um, he said the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle that's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And that's locked in with me for my whole life, that Jesus wants our whole life. He wants, he wants every part of it, not just, not just the moments. Because you could come in and you could sing the songs and you, can, and you could bow your head in prayer, but real worship starts on the inside. So we know that. Real worship starts on the inside. And he wants to be worshipped by your whole life. That means how you live is supposed to be an expression of God's redemptive story. The passage of scripture that jumps out to me when I think about worshiping God with our whole lives is obviously Romans 12, if you're familiar with it, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For our purposes this morning, there are a few important things going on in this particular passage. Notice that the Apostle Paul, who is, who is writing this, he describes spiritual worship that, that is true, biblical, genuine worship. He describes it as being a living sacrifice. And there are two parts to that. First, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then later, be uh, renewed in your mind. There is, there is a renewal in your mind that has to happen so that, so that by testing, you can understand God's will and then you can be good and acceptable and perfect. So 
there's a, an internal part of being a living sacrifice. Like this is real, genuine spiritual worship that you live as a sacrifice to God, which starts inside. It starts with the renewal of your mind. And so we're going to look at, at, at two things that that sort of points at. Following God with your life starts internally. That's not a surprise. Every other part of worship starts internally. Otherwise, we're guilty of what Isaiah said, or what the Lord said in Isaiah, which is that they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we have to start with our heart. And living a life that honors God inside, there are two main things that come up over and over again in the Bible. These things have to be true for you to live a holy life. These things have to be true on the inside. The first one comes from places like Proverbs 28, verse 14. Let's look at that together. It says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So as we worship God with our lives, there's something internally that has to be true, something the Bible tells us has to be true on the inside. What do you think it is? What, has to, what do we have to have inside? Step one. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. That has to be true inside. Now, fear is a weird thing to talk about. But um, let's go back to the passage. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But what is fearing the Lord contrasted with? What is it compared to? Having a hardened heart which is Bible speak for pride. So fearing God is the opposite of being prideful. Fearing God very often in the Bible is contrasted with pride and it's placed in support of humility. I'm not going to get into um, all of the passages, but if you want to look them up later, I'm going to give you a couple to write down. One is Isaiah 66, 2 from the Old Testament. That's Isaiah 66, 2. And then Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Talk about fearing God as being the opposite of pride and as being uh, for or toward our humility. So it's good for us. Uh, but there's a passage in Romans chapter 11 that I, I want to point at. I'm going to read to you where the Apostle Paul was explaining that some Jews have lost the faith because they rejected Jesus. And then in verse 20, he said, They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast because of your faith. So don't become arrogant, but be afraid. Fearing God, in its essence, is about recognizing that he's there, recognizing who he is, that he can do whatever he wants, that he has the power to do whatever he wants, and he's not happy with you. He doesn't like some of the stuff you've been into. I, I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking, what if, um, what if the, the presidential motorcade showed up at church one morning, and all these cars showed up, and the president, you don't have to like the president, but the president gets out of, of the car and uh, with his secret service and they, and they come in and I was thinking, 
shoot, I should have like should have dusted off the chairs, you know what I mean? Or I should have I should have moved some stuff and I should have, you know, that poster that I've been planning to put up. I should have put that up already. Oh, why didn't I put the poster up? And you know, did we get the garbages empty? I, like I would be sort of panicky about did we, you know, did we do cuz who knows? I mean, he's just got so much power. When we realize the power that God has, who he is, that he's real, that he's really powerful, and that he's not happy with the stuff that you do, that should create in us fear of the Lord. And that over and over again in the Bible comes up, that you have to have this fear, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. You have to start there. It's just a recognition of who he is, okay? So fear God, that's one. It starts there. And the second step, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. This is verse 6. This is the second internal thing that has to be true. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is already pointing at the fear. We have to believe that he's there, understand who he is, but then to please him, in order for that to be able to engage worship, we have to believe in him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. You can know that he's there, but if you don't believe in him, you can't worship him. So internally, you have to fear the Lord, and you have to have faith in God. The word faith doesn't come, much, uh, come up much in the Old Testament, but its cousins, trust and believe, come up all the time. Trust and believe are all over the place in the Old Testament. The New Testament is quite clear about faith being the doorway to salvation and a right relationship with God. For example, you've probably heard this around church before, but Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is gives us access, we're ultimately saved by God's grace. But without faith, it's impossible to get there. It's impossible to worship him and to please him. So those two things have to be true on the inside. Amen? Amen. All right. So this trusting faith is necessary in order to live a life of personal holiness. You have to know that God's there and you have to believe in him, trusting in him, knowing that he wants what's best for you. So fear of the Lord and faith in God are necessary for genuine worship. Inside. Inside. But we also know that worship is an expression. Amen? It is something that comes out. So there is an external um, expectation for worship in our lives. You've got to make sure you've got one and two. And then the next step is to make sure that that's coming out. There are two key external components or um, evidences of, of these things being true in ways that we worship God. These come up in the Bible. We see the first one very early in Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from that time Jesus began to preach. This is very early in his ministry. And what was he saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does Jesus want you to do? If you see God and you recognize him and you, and you know enough about him to fear him and you believe in him, you trust in him, 
It's not just that you believe that he's there. It's a trust. Like it, and I, I know I'm going backwards in the outline, but it's the kind of belief where I say, I, I, I believe in you in a way that I'm, I'm going to trust you. Like I believe Amazon stocks are going to go up. But if I just believe it in my head, I just I think that it's true. But if I invest my savings in Amazon, that's the kind of belief that God wants from us. It's a belief that invests, that cares, that comes out in your life. And one of the first things that it has to do in your life as it comes out is it should cause repentance. So Jesus wants us to repent. Repentance means something like change your mind or pick a different path. There's a way that you in your sinfulness and your brokenness want to live. There's a way that my flesh wants to live. There's a path that I want to walk down. But if you know that God is there and you fear him and you trust him, Jesus wants you to show it by rejecting that path, rejecting your sinful life, and and getting on board with what, what Jesus has called you to do. So he wants you to reject the sinful part of your life. That's repentance. Pick a different path. There's really only one main time in your life when that happens. That's when, when God pulls on your heart so strongly, he shows you your sin and just causes you to, to just reach out with your heart and say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that stuff anymore. Do you remember when that happened for you? Do you remember when God pulled on your heart so hard that you just broke and said, I'm sorry. That's repentance. But even for those of us who have done that a long time ago, as we grow in Christ, we're constantly needing to repent. We constantly look at where we are and say, I know that's not where I should be. And we constantly reject the things that the world sort of pulls us back into. That's repentance. That, that is required of our worship. For you to worship God, you have to repent with your life. But rejecting the bad isn't the end. We also have to embrace the righteous path, which is Jesus. So let's look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. This is verse 34. And calling, to the, the, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus, You have to deny yourself, which is repentance, get off of your path, and then you have to get on his path, so, you, so follow Jesus. These external components to living a life of holiness, they start on the inside by knowing God, knowing who he is, by fearing him, by believing in him, though, like he's powerful, but I trust him. He is powerful and I'm afraid of that, but I trust him with everything that I have. I trust him enough to do something. I trust him enough to 
get off of my path and to get on board with him. So reject your path, which is repentance, and then follow Jesus. And follow Jesus is really what living a life that honors God, personal holiness, is all about following Jesus. But you can't follow Jesus without repenting. And you can't repent without believing in God. And you can't believe in God without knowing that he's there and fearing him. But living a life that honors God is all about following Jesus. Take a minute to consider what it would look like to follow Jesus. What would it look like? Because you don't have to wear sandals or a tunic. You're allowed to shower more often than they did. You, there are all kinds of things that we're allowed to do. But how did Jesus live and what did he tell us to do in following him? Jesus loved sinners. Do you? And I don't mean that you love sinners enough to tell them that they're sinners. Well, I love sinners, so I tell them all the time they're sinners. That's not what we find Jesus doing. He's hanging out with them. He's spending time with them. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. They're his enemies. They wanted to kill him, but they invite him over for dinner. And what does he do? He shows up. And then they put a, a sick man in front of him. And they, they're testing him to see if he's going to do something on the Sabbath. And what does he do? He does something. He does something. Love sinners. Do you love sinners? Would a sinner in your life say that you love them? And that you show that, that it shows up. Do you love your enemies? Jesus said, love your enemies. Do you love your enemies? Do you hate your enemies? Because that's normal. That's normal. Ah, oh, oh, those Republicans. Oh, those Democrats. Am I pushing any buttons? Oh, those people, all oh, these people, all oh, my neighbors, right? Love your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. Take care of those people in your life. And when people persecute you, praise God. Praise God. That's hard. It's hard to praise God when you're getting beat up. These are not easy things to do, but these are things that Jesus did for you. Jesus crawled up on a cross and died because he loves you when you were his enemy. And he wants us to do that. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like? It means take up your cross. Don't go the way that you want to go. Do the hard thing. and Take the cross down and carry it. The cross means death. It means follow Jesus all the way to the point where you give up your life to honor him. Jesus helped the helpless. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, but also to serve, not to be served. Do we have that attitude? Do I have that attitude where I, I live to serve him and others? I live to serve the church. I live to serve my community. Do we do that? 
Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Yeah. It's for you to follow Jesus. To live like him, to love like him, to serve like him, to give like him, to give sacrificially, to live sacrificially. What did Jesus do when, uh, when sin came up, when he was tempted? He used scripture to overcome the temptation to sin. God wants us to live a holy life. Part of that means loving and serving, but a big part of that means don't sin. In Jesus, we have the ability to reject sin. You don't have the ability, but Jesus does. The Holy Spirit has the ability to give you what you need to reject sin. And lastly, Jesus shared the gospel boldly, all the time. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. So how are we doing? But praise God that he never gives up on us. Let, let part of this stick with you. Maybe not the whole thing. Let something, let the Holy Spirit right now speak some truth into your heart to give you something that you need to work on. Because the purpose of a sermon is it's not a speech. The sermon is supposed to produce a response in you. There's something that you're supposed to do because of this. What is it? Maybe it's loving your neighbors. Maybe you need to stop fighting with your neighbors over the trash cans. I don't know. Maybe you need to love your enemies. Maybe you need to, to sacrifice something for somebody else. Maybe you need to, to give. Maybe you need to serve. Maybe you need to share the gospel. Whatever that is, let the Holy Spirit speak that to you this morning and go and change something and live a life of personal holiness that's honoring to God, not just when we sing or when we pray, but as we live. Let your life be an act of worship. Be a living sacrifice to Jesus. Let's pray.